Welcome to Management for Startups. Management for Startups is about managing in small businesses and organizations between 2 to 50 people. My name is Cedric. This podcast is never longer than 15 minutes, so let's get started. So today we're going to be talking about prioritization as a manager. And this episode is part of the mini-series, The Bare Minimum You Need to Know to Be an Adequate Manager. Um, this is the third technique of four techniques that we're going to cover in this series. Uh, there's also a fifth technique that I've mentioned is an invisible technique that you're going to learn uh, as you learn to execute the four techniques. So uh, as a reminder, this podcast is specifically for those of you in startups who don't like management, but you're forced into managerial roles because that's the way it is in startups. You stay long enough to become senior and eventually you become responsible for the output of other people. And this four, these four techniques really are designed to reintroduce a semblance of sanity and control back into your schedule. Because I know that for most people who are new managers in a startup, you can't be a pure manager. Uh, most likely, you still have some individual contributor responsibilities, be it as a programmer, marketer, or designer. So this, I think today's episode is going to be of special interest to you because uh, we've already covered training and we've covered delegation. And in the previous episode, we covered a framework for thinking about all management techniques, not just the techniques covered in this series, but any kind of management techniques that you encounter in the course of your career. But prioritization really is the one thing that I think will make the biggest difference to your sanity. I know that a lot of managers, when they start managing uh, and you know they still have responsibilities as an IC, what often happens is that they become incredibly um, unhappy because their time is now fractured between uh, long blocks of concentration, which you need to execute your IC tasks, as well as this sort of fractured schedule that managers have because managerial work is this weird, like, uh, infinite treadmill of work that just keeps appearing and that you can't plan for. So I think that kind of explains the main reason why prioritization is important. There are two main reasons. The first main reason is that managerial tasks really never end and they expand to fit any amount of time that you give them. Um, and this can be really bad because if you're still a programmer or a designer, you probably know that you need long stretches of uninterrupted time to concentrate on your tasks. But the second reason that it's important to learn prioritization is because if you can't prioritize and you don't know how to prioritize, then you don't know how to say no. And you don't know if you say no what the consequences of saying no to certain tasks are. Uh, this is particularly insidious for people like me uh, because I feel horrible right, if people are depending on my actions or people are depending on my work and I don't do that work and it affects their, their output or it affects their day. And this is pretty much, I think, the vast majority of managerial tasks. So knowing how to prioritize uh, also, I think as part of it, um, allows you to make decisions when push comes to shove because startups are often really busy uh, companies, right? There's too much work and there's too little people. So if you have to drop something on the floor, right? If you had to have to, um, you know, you're juggling balls and you need to drop one of the balls, it pays to be able to think about uh, your the importance or the relative importance of each managerial tasks so you can decide uh, consciously that to drop a certain activity and then pay the, for the consequences. Uh, but at least now you're doing it consciously and with full awareness of what the results are. 
How do you prioritize? Well, the key to prioritization as a manager really lies in the idea that we talked about in our previous episode, right? This concept of managerial leverage. So I've mentioned before that the job of the manager is to increase the output of the team. And if you successfully increase the output of the team, then you're exercising positive managerial leverage. And of course, the converse is also true. If you don't, uh, you decrease the output of your team, then you're exercising negative managerial leverage. And this is how you learn to prioritize, right? Basically, you use leverage and managerial leverage as the metric uh, to measure of like to, to say which activity it is as a manager that's truly important and which activity you should do less of or you should not do uh, any of. Um, but to make it more concrete, we do need to define managerial leverage further. There are really three types of managerial leverage, right? And, and all of your management activities can fit into one of these three categories. So let's go look at them in turn. The first category, the first type of managerial leverage is the, the situation where you have an activity where one person affects the output of a lot of people. So a classic example of this is obviously delegation, right? Uh, your ability to delegate well, your ability to not micromanage, and your ability to train is basically one person affecting the output of many people. I've given a very, uh, I think, a good example in the last episode of a manager who didn't uh, write the specification for, the for a feature before the programmers became ready to work on it, right? And so basically, two programmers were just sitting around and doing nothing because the manager uh, hadn't taught to put in the work uh, to get the specification for that feature ready in time. So it's very obvious that in this particular case, this manager had affected the output of two people. And then I also talk about the even worse uh, scenario where the manager uh, messed up the specification or rushed the specification, and then the programmers basically implemented the wrong feature, wasted a week of work, and affected every other department in the company that depended on the delivery of that feature. So I think that's a fairly simple and obvious uh, implication or like uh, instance of managerial leverage. Now, the second type of managerial leverage is when you do some work, some task for a short period of time, but then you affect uh, a subordinate or your organization for a long period of time. So a good example of this, I think, is performance uh, review, um, where basically once a year or once a quarter, you have to sit down with your subordinate and give them a performance review, and this determines their promotions or their salary or their bonuses, depending on like your, your company. Um, this is a perfect example because the manager only spends maybe, I don't know, five hours per, per report, uh, per performance review, but then this affects the performance of, of the subordinate for the next quarter, right? If you don't do it well, you deliver it badly, or worse, you completely mess it up and there's a huge misunderstanding, what's going to happen is that you're going to affect the output of your subordinate for at least a few months. So it's really important to get performance review right and to spend an extra few hours or you know just that little bit of extra time to make sure that you, you do it properly. Because as a manager, doing it wrongly would mean affecting the output of your subordinate uh, for many, many months, much longer than the extra hours that you spend doing it right. Another example of this, I think, is one-on-ones. Uh, I think I have a classic sorry, story that I tell my sub subordinates uh, or I tell my managers uh, of me messing up my one-on-ones. So there was like this crunch period where we were all working really hard to deliver uh, this new product for a client. And I think in the two weeks leading up to that particular deployment, I remember not doing my one-on-ones. So, sorry, not two weeks. It was even worse than that, actually. It was two months. I didn't do my one-on-ones for two months, thinking that, oh, you know, 
my time will be better spent as a programmer contributing to this project so that we can hit the deadline. Um, and what happened was right before the Chinese New Year, uh, or, or in Vietnam, the Vietnamese New Year, which basically had a two-week holiday, I did my one-on-ones because I thought, okay, you know, there's a two-week holiday coming up. Let's just do our one-on-ones. And then I found out during the one-on-ones that the the principal engineer for this project would not be around due to the Vietnamese Lunar New Year and he would be gone for two weeks whereas our deployment in Singapore because Singapore only has two days of holiday for Chinese New Year uh, the deployment would basically go on without our principal software engineer the one person on the entire team who knew all the intricacies of this project right and so there was a disaster And I didn't see that coming. And I think that this is like a classic example of me not putting in a minimum amount of time, right? My one-on-ones were basically an hour per report and I had seven direct reports. So basically seven hours to prevent this problem way in advance, that was very worth it. And I didn't do that. And so therefore I exercised negative managerial leverage. In the end, what I had to do was we had to rush um, to onboard some other senior engineer and to get him uh, to up to speed so that he could be available during the deployment, uh, during you know the, the Vietnamese Lunar New Year. But it was a, still a very terrible experience. And I think I could have uh, done a huge, you know, I'd done a much better job if I had actually stuck to doing my one-on-ones because the time cost was ultimately uh, worth it to prevent this really painful uh, scramble that we had to do before the deployment. So that's the second example, the second category of managerial leverage. The third uh, example of managerial leverage is a little more abstract. Um, it is knowledge, using your specific and unique knowledge to affect the output or the performance uh, of uh, the rest of the company. And this is usually something that happens cross company, cross departments or functions in the company. So an example of this would be, I remember in my company, uh, we in engineering, we had a unique insight into the kinds of problems uh, in the product that our customers face because customer support will go directly to us. And usually sales has no uh, clue as to which parts of the product are doing well, which parts of the product are doing badly because sales just does sales, right? And then it hands off to uh, deployment and then engineering and customer support worries about it. So in this particular example, I remember a, a particular set of features in our product that, that was fairly new. I think we had just built it around two or three months in. Uh, I mean, it's like two or three months old in the product. And we began to see a huge number of customer complaints. They were either uh, reliability complaints, that basically there was a lot of bugs, or we had complaints in terms of like usability because it was not a very usable interface because we had rushed the development of this set of features for this subcategory of customers. What happened was I realized around, I think, the second month of constant uh, customer complaints and constant engineering effort to try to fix the problem that the module that we were dealing with, I mean, that part of the code base that we were dealing with was really brittle and I had let the, uh, the code quality slip. And so therefore... I needed to stop the amount of new customers getting sold, right, uh, where this product was being sold because sales didn't know what was going on and sales was continually trying to sell up this like set of features because it was new and sexy. And so we, I needed basically to go to sales and say, hey, can you hold off on selling this feature for a month while we show up the problems uh, on, this, on this particular set of features? And it's probably going to affect sales for a little bit. But right now what's happening is that customer support and engineering is overwhelmed 
by support requests for this particular feature to the point where we can't do anything else. We can't uh, do normal customer support very easily and we can't build other new features that the business requires. And so basically I got my boss on board and I got the head of sales on board and we managed to pause sales of this particular sub-product for a month while fixing it. And in this particular case, I think I exercised really positive managerial leverage because I affected not only engineering's performance, but also customer support's performance. And this was only really possible due to the fact that I knew this piece of information that wasn't really clear to my boss, a CEO, and wasn't really clear to the head of sales. So really, there's only three categories of uh, managerial leverage. I really have not seen any other category apart from these three. And I think it's a very nice exercise for you to sit down the next time, maybe grab a beer or a coffee and write down every single management task that you have and categorize it into one of these three categories. And I think it's pretty obvious as well that these are examples of positive management, oh, sorry, managerial leverage and I given positive examples where uh, successful execution resulted in an increase in the output of your team, right? But it's, it's important to know that these activities, if you do them badly, it's also an opportunity to exercise negative managerial leverage. So you really do have to treat uh, high leverage activities. And certainly some activities are higher leverage than others. Uh, you have to treat these activities with a certain amount of respect um, and a certain amount of thoughtfulness when you start doing them because you know that these activities, if done badly, can affect your team and your organization fairly negatively. What I like to do, and I think this is the last idea that I'm going to leave you with, is I tell my managers when you want to prioritize, uh, you should sit down and draw like a four quadrant thing. So I think this has been used in, I don't know, business schools. I'm not sure where it comes from originally, but basically it, take, it requires you to take a piece of paper and then you draw two axes, right? An X axis and a Y axis. So you divide the paper into four quarters and each quadrant uh, it's either high urgency or high leverage. And then you can categorize your activities on a location in this four quadrant. Uh, if it's high urgency and high leverage, of course, you do it. If it's low urgency but high leverage, then you make time to do it. If it is high urgency but low leverage, this is tricky. Sometimes this means that this is a crisis and that you still have to do it anyway because the business requires you to do it, but try not to do it if possible. And it goes without saying as well that if it's low urgency and low leverage, you shouldn't do it. So that's it for today. I think this is going to be super helpful. You should try this immediately after listening to the podcast. Uh, I think it will make a big difference to your managerial work. Uh, that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about the fourth and final technique. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. Bye.